several years ago. A minister is sitting and reading one Sunday morning, and a parishioner knocks on the door. So the minister, she opens the door, and there's a man standing there in a cold sweat. He's obviously very, very concerned. So she asks, what's wrong? And he says, well, there's this family that lives down the road. The guy lost his job. They've got no money. They can't pay the rent. She looks after her sick mother who lives with them. They've got four kids. It's the middle of winter. But if they don't pay their rent by tomorrow, their landlord is going to kick them out. The minister says, that's terrible. I'll get some money from the church. And then she says, by the way, how do you know this family? And he says, oh, I'm the landlord. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Literature. Postmodern Liturgy is a weekly podcast, among other things, which seeks to revision spiritual formation. Since this is the first official podcast, I wanted to take a moment and talk about the format. I hope to offer a variety of resources, but the thing that will always be the same is that we will always work through the readings outlined in the lectionary for the following Sunday. I think it could be a great resource in many different ways. I hope you will consider listening to it in one sitting because a lot of the reflection will be on how the texts fit together, which is why I've tried to limit the time. But as an avid podcast listener, I know this isn't always possible. So in the show notes, I've included the times of each reading. So if you want to skip around or revisit a passage, you can do so easily. I also want to intentionally leave some space after each reading for reflection. So the music will continue to give you time to process before the next section starts. There are a ton of podcasts out there that wrestle with ideas through the medium of discussion. I love that, but I hope this one also encourages engagement in the moment. For reasons that will become clear during the readings, this week is sometimes associated with doubt because of the passage with Thomas as a main character. But it is important to remember, this is not the Sunday after Easter. This is the second Sunday of Easter. Perhaps that is the beginning of helping us to connect the themes in the reading. Before speculating any further, let's dig into the passages this week. Acts 5, 27-32 When the temple police 
had brought the apostles, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at God's right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who are obedient. Before reading the next passage, I wanted to offer a point of clarification. If you weren't aware, when the Lord, with L-O-R-D capitalized, appears in certain translations in the Old Testament, that's a reference to the Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton is the name for God, which is four Hebrew consonants, yod Hey vav Hey, or Y-H-W-H. For speed, we say Yahweh. There's almost an endless amount of beauty in this name, which I'll skip for now, but I do need to say it was not said out loud, hence the phrase Tetragrammaton. I have some level of respect for the practice of avoiding saying that name, but since you have no way of hearing capital letters, I've substituted in the name Yahweh where it should appear. I do think it's important to know where a specific name is being used. Psalm 118 14 through 29. Yahweh is my strength and my defense, and has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. Yahweh's right hand has done mighty things. Yahweh's right hand is lifted high. Yahweh's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live and will proclaim what Yahweh has done. Yahweh has chastened me severely, but has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to Yahweh. This is the gate of Yahweh, through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. 
The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Yahweh has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Yahweh has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Yahweh, save us. Yahweh, grant us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. From the house of Yahweh, we bless you. Yahweh is God and has made Yahweh's light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to Yahweh, for Yahweh is good. Yahweh's love endures forever. Revelation 1, 4 through 8. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty.
John 20, 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. There would appear to be a pretty clear theme at the intersection of the text this week. The combination of the four is quite creedal. That is to say, these four readings sound a lot like a Christian belief statement. Of course, this makes a ton of sense in the second week of Easter. Last week, we were consumed with the story, and this week we move toward some outcomes. I don't mean to jump right over this point, but I would like to put a pin in the word belief and share some observations about the gospel passage in John. I have come to realize that one of the most important questions to ask about scripture, if not the most important question, is what is the author trying to tell us? Put another way, why did the author choose to include this information? We really need to stop acting like scripture contains a full report of everything that ever happened. The authors, like all good authors, made choices and seemed to be strategic with their messaging. 
This reading in John really acts as the conclusion of the Gospel of John. The following chapter acts as its epilogue. So now, since this is the conclusion, this story becomes far more significant. With that being said, let me offer a couple observations about this passage. Number one, the quote, Doubting Thomas story only appears here, in this place. It's not in any of the other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. Number two, I think it's helpful to take note of the Greek words behind the translations of belief and doubt when Jesus says, do not doubt, but believe. Believe is translated from the Greek pistos, and the Greek word translated as doubt is a pistos. This is important because I think our use of the word doubt is something more like have questions about or be unsure. When looking at the Greek, we understand this choice is far more binary. Something like, do not not believe, but believe. Number three, this is the most explicit reference to Jesus' physical wounds in all of the Gospels. In fact, if you went back and looked, you may notice most of the time it just says Jesus was crucified or the crucifixion took place. This is the most explicit reference. The book of John opens with one of the richest pieces of incarnation theology in all of Scripture. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In that light, it would seem that the answer to the question of why this story is included at the end is to bookend the author's Christology, which is the study of Christ's person, nature, and purpose. Significantly, Thomas needs to interact with the wounds of Jesus in order to highlight Christ's humanity, which is mixed with the divinity that raised Christ from the dead. But, Craig Keener, in his commentary on the book of John, rightly observes that the actual climax to this conclusion is Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God. It isn't really, oh, okay, now I believe. What's the difference? Well, oh, okay, now I believe is a checkbox on a test. My Lord and my God says, now I know this thing that I have been a part of is not defeated, but continues and we have a kingdom of God to bring to the world. This brings us back to the story I told at the beginning of the podcast. Peter Rollins has observed, Christian truth can be something you affirm intellectually, but doesn't make a change. This is exactly like how the person in the story is both the advocate of the people who can't afford their rent and their landlord, who is insisting on receiving the rent on the threat of eviction. I'll stop tiptoeing around the issue and put it this way. Doubt all you want, at least doubt in the cultural definition I mentioned before. Questioning and uncertainty is how we work this whole thing out. But I don't think our cognitive assertions matter all that much until we put some flesh on them. As in, our pistos is seen much better in how we live. Do you know how I know? Because this passage brings us back to the understanding that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But Anthony, you might say, how can you say this passage isn't all about cognitive doubt when Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Here's why I'm hesitant to elevate this statement to the overall point of the story. First, I am concerned that we read far too much doubt-shame onto Thomas. So, 
blessed are those who have not seen becomes cursed are those that needed to see. That conclusion is not seen in the text. After all, Thomas has the exact same experience as the other disciples. They all got to see Jesus' wounds in person, and none of them were condemned for it. Secondly, it's helpful to keep in mind that this book was written far after a time where anyone would have had the opportunity to see Jesus' wounds in person. So it seems entirely possible the inclusion of Jesus' statement here is only to undergird Christians with confidence who would never have the opportunity to see Jesus in the flesh. For these reasons, I think we should stick with Thomas's statement of my Lord and my God as the main point of this story, rather than belief or not. But I would like to go one step further along this route to suggest a question. What if the author is not shaming a desire for evidence, but rather suggesting that evidence will never be enough? In other words, don't ask for proof, not because it makes you weak, but because you won't be able to find sufficient proof. The bottom line is, Christianity cannot be proven. I can't even begin to imagine what it would mean for Christianity to be proven. And by the way, it should not go unsaid that we generally have spread doubt shame over a number of categories that it has no business interacting with. Do you doubt that the earth is only four years old or whatever that period of time is? Do you question the possibility of two of every species fitting on a sailing vessel? No, 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 no. The question is, do you pistos that Christ defeated death and is working toward the redemption of all things? Perhaps that is even still a struggle. I'm okay with that. But if not, we must know our faith is not shown by correct answers or affirmations. It's seen when we put some flesh on that pistos. So, in order to reflect on these ideas, instead of affirming the Apostles' Creed, I've turned it into a series of questions for you to reflect on. What exactly would it look like if we believed in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? difference would it make in the world if we believed in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, who descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. transformation should be seen if we believed in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That does it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining me. If you would like to connect with our work and see more content, join us at postmodernliturgy.com. To interact, we are Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook, at PM Liturgy on Twitter, and at Postmodern Liturgy on Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, it is always helpful if you consider sharing the podcast and rating and reviewing it in your podcast app. And finally, I would love if you would consider supporting our work at Postmodern Liturgy by becoming a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. Just to highlight a couple relevant benefits, if you sign up at the $5 level, you get a free download of all the original music in the podcasts. The $10 level offers a ton of worship resources, especially related to the podcast and small group questions each week. Thank you again for listening and engaging, and as always, enjoy the tension.